as parents. Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous opportunity to gather together as family, Father, in the unity of the faith, a faith that you've provided each one of us, especially out of love. Father, thank you for the inspired canon of Scripture. Thank you for leading us to it always. And thank you for enabling us with faculties to understand it, to embrace it, to fall in love with it each and every day. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that can't be with us, that are suffering. We know there are many and we also know that you have a plan for each and every one of us, but nonetheless, Father, we pray for those individuals that they understand that we long to see them and that our hearts go out to them as well as our prayers. Father, we pray for those still lost in this world as well, that given your patience and your divine providence that we might evangelize them and have additional brothers and sisters in Christ for all of eternity. What a magnificent thing that would be. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt, to make an evening like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. And by the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, what is repentance and who gets to define it? I want to review Tuesday's awesome lesson, loved it. Um, the Holy Spirit opened that lesson with a plain statement about the whole man. That's, I could have just as easily, if we weren't in a series, I would have absolutely titled this evening's message, The Whole Man, because that's been um, the crux of what the Spirit's been saying to us, um, and it has everything to do with repentance and saving faith, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that God deals with the heart, and when he when the Bible speaks about the heart, often it's speaking about the whole man. And we have to think about it that way. Whenever we have a conversation or um, some kind of study regarding any aspect of the gospel, we have to think of the whole man. Uh, and Don't be offended, women, because when I say that, I mean the whole man or the whole woman, of course. Um, so the Holy Spirit opened that lesson with a plain statement about the whole man. And that, as most of you know, the Bible often talks about the heart of man uh, as encapsulating all of him, not merely one specific faculty that he might have, for example, his mind or his will or his emotions, etc., etc. So the Bible uh, often talks about the whole man, the whole person, um, and it uses words like heart to refer to the whole man. Um, so when the Bible says that God sees the heart, for example, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, it is referring to the innermost parts of man as well as the outermost, uh, but to include his mind, his emotions, often thought of as the heart, and his will. And that's uh, been sort of our laundry list of reminders, his mind, his heart, and his will. So up here on the board... Regarding the whole man, when we talk about heart issues relative to salvation, the heart refers to the whole man. Colloquially, we might say that a person's you know, heart just isn't in it to signify an inferior commitment or willingness. You know that old saying, right? Their heart just isn't in it. And that's a terrible, you know, you might have a co-worker like that or, you know, someone that you care about and, and um, you know, they should be doing a certain something, but their heart's just not in it, and so they don't get it done. It just doesn't happen. Um, their person just has sort of turned negative against whatever it is, and um, that's something that we see in the Bible, that there are just individuals out there that maybe you're trying to evangelize, but their heart's just not in it. Uh, maybe they go to church even. But their heart's just not in it. Um, and that's really what the Spirit's been saying. He, you know, we sort of dip in and we look at elements of repentance. We look at specific passages regarding repentance. But he always brings us back to the gospel and that God is looking at a man's heart uh, when we talk about the gospel. 
And sometimes the man's heart just isn't in it. So this is the same thing, again, that we see in the Bible uh, when someone's heart just isn't in it. And what we see as we look around in so-called Christian churches even is masses of people whose hearts just aren't in it. They say they're Christians. If you ask them on the street, yeah, I'm a Christian. But their hearts aren't in it. Unfortunately, as the Spirit's been pointing out, there are some folks out there who recognize and believe in the facts about God's salvation plan. However, as the Spirit's been pointing out regarding this whole man concept, the actual facts about God's salvation plan, and this is something Scott said on Tuesday, the actual facts about God's salvation plan are what you uh, make a decision based upon, but you still have to make a decision about him and his son specifically, all of you. Um, again, the actual facts don't, I mean, the actual facts are important. That's not what the Spirit's saying. Um, that's what the, your decision is, is based on, of course. But you still have to make that decision about him and his son specifically. Contrarily, if a person continues to believe that the self-life is sufficient to save them, or deliver them. They are refusing the Lord's sufficiency as Savior. So on Tuesday, we noted a very uh, familiar passage of Scripture to help us with our current study, what is repentance. Go to Luke 23, 39. Luke 23, 39. A very famous a uh, very popular passage of Scripture, Luke 23:39, And it's a good illustration, as we'll continue to see, of uh, a repentant individual, a saved individual. Almost the whole conversion process encapsulated here in a scene, even though uh, we don't know how far um, or how much that person's soil was worked or tilled prior to uh, hanging there on the cross. There's no indication of it other than that he does turn to the Lord. Uh, Luke 23, 39, one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Obviously, this individual, as it came out on Tuesday, understood the facts about Jesus, at least enough to say what he's saying. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And so in verse 41, you understand what that, uh, we'll call it the repentant thief on the cross, understood that he was um, deserving of his punishment, and that uh, we see also a repentant heart there. And then, of course, we see him turning to Christ. So we have up here on the board, as sort of a summary, the thief on the cross. The story about the two thieves on crosses is really a magnificent illustration of conversion, beginning with repentance and then completing the process with saving faith. And uh, as we were studying that on Tuesday, um, this side note came out again, and I want to share it with you, um, so concentrate. There's a supernatural reality that is, quote, difficult to get our arms around. For example, we are commanded to repent, to believe, to have faith, etc., to be saved. That is what is commanded by God. So in one sense, there is a very real personal accountability to God on this topic. In other words, he says, if you want to be saved, you have to believe. You have to repent. You have to have faith. That's how you're saved. And the command is literally aimed at us. So in a sense, there's a very personal accountability to God on this topic which is why unbelievers are justly sentenced to hell. In other words, God holds them personally responsible. That's why he's just in sentencing 
an unbeliever to hell. So we know that there's a very real personal accountability to God on this subject. And yet, simultaneously, even paradoxically, we might say, we are informed that it is by God's grace alone that we are even able to repent or believe or have saving faith, etc., etc. So on one hand, we're, we're held personally responsible. On the other hand, there's no way on earth we're able to do it. One of the most humanly paradoxical statements in the Bible explains this very truth. Go to John 6.44. I was studying this today on my own. Very interesting uh, passage of Scripture uh, by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. John 6.44. Again, there's this paradox, this thing that is very difficult for mere humans to comprehend. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's a huge statement. No one gets to come to the the Lord Jesus Christ unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now that's very interesting, isn't it? Because why doesn't, the, why doesn't God, the God of the universe, who desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of Him, just teach everybody then? <laughs> because man has a part in it. That's the whole point. And it's not human works to say that man has a part in his own salvation. I mean, heck, he's held responsible for it at the end of the day. If he doesn't believe, if he doesn't have saving faith, then guess what? He goes to the lake of fire. So we're either going to say God is unjust or something really supernatural is going on here. Because then we read Jesus' own words there in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So you mean to tell me, technically speaking, you could have somebody striving to get through the narrow gate and not get there? Yeah, that's elsewhere in Scripture, as we just saw. There are people who want it, per se, but unless God draws them, unless God teaches them, unless God convicts them through His own Holy Spirit, it's not happening. Now, that seems almost paradoxical, that a God who wants everyone to be saved, who has the ability to save everyone, doesn't save everyone. God teaches truth and even enables conversion. Do not miss this. Again, I ask you to concentrate. Man is born totally enslaved. Totally enslaved, unable to do anything for himself, at least in terms of salvation. That's how we're born. We're born slaves, totally enslaved completely in shackles, cannot do anything to save ourselves. Anything he is able to learn even, and that's what we just saw in that last verse, anything he is able to learn even about God is a grace gift. Doesn't the Bible say to the unregenerate person, spiritually appraised things cannot be understood this this whole thing? So anything we even learn about God is a grace gift. And any repentance or believing or saving faith is a grace gift likewise. This is what Jesus teaches us. Look at verse uh, John 6, 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Wait a minute. Come on. So God's the one who, we don't get there unless God draws us. But yet there's this personal accountability to believe. The simple truth is as follows, up here on the board. God saves, man is involved. A naturally minded man cannot understand the things of God, that's 1 Corinthians 2.14, such as man being called to repent, believe, have faith for salvation, 
while God is the only one able to grant them. That's almost um, silliness to a natural-minded person. In salvation, God's and man's wills are fused supernaturally. It's the best word I can come up with. Causing a naturally-minded or causing a naturally-minded man fits. I mean, that's the paradox, right? I mean, so where does that take us? To the supernatural. To the grace of God. I mean, how else? Who can be saved, as the apostles or disciples would say? Who can be saved? With God, all things are possible. What else do you want a pastor to say? That's the way it is. We have all these facts about God and how He saves us. And that even if you try to take a spiritual shoehorn and shoehorn your way into heaven, let's say. Unless he drew you, you're not coming. So be it. We mustn't fall prey to the lies, though, in contemporary Christianity. And I think that's what happens is a lot of people spend way too much time, way too much time trying to figure out um, these things instead of just accepting them at face value, we try to figure them out. And in the process of trying to figure them out and supposedly make it easier to understand, we end up messing the whole thing up. Again, here's what we do know. God saves. Man is involved. This is absolutely why the disciples contemplating salvation from the, quote, difficulty of human perspective Ask that famous question, then who can be saved? It makes no sense. You're saying it's, hard, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? No, I mean, come on, what are you saying? I'm saying that you have no hope without me, without the Father, without the Holy Spirit, without God. So this little sidebar is to establish the following truth. Again, we're still on this theme, God saves, man is involved. It is never right to say that man is passive in salvation, nor is it ever right to say that God is passive in it either. Both parties are active and accountable. God ensures it. We're not passive in our salvation. We actually have commands placed upon us, do we not? Repent, believe, have faith. Those are commands. And if we don't have those things, we're sentenced to the lake of fire. Because he won't save us. So we have a personal accountability. So we can't be passive in our salvation. But it's also not right to say that God is passive in it either. That would imply human works or climbing our way into heaven, so to speak. What we do know from Scripture is that both parties are active and accountable. God ensures it. For example... Man really does possess repentance and faith. In other words, and I've taught you this, that's that, that Greek word lumbano. Just because God gives it to you doesn't mean it's not yours personally. It is yours, right? Do you not have a repentant heart? Do you not have saving faith? Do you not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Of course you do. And whose things are those? Those are yours. And they're personal. So man really does possess repentance and faith. They are what we could call his. Up here on the board. Just because salvation forensics are grace gifts from God doesn't mean that man isn't held accountable to God's demands regarding said things. Am I personally trying to tangle you up this evening? No. But to some, in some degree, yeah. Because I want you to be frustrated in your human desire to rationalize, to overthink the things of God, rather than just accept them at face value. I want you to come to a dead end. You know what? I've been there. I want you to just say, you know what? With God, all things are possible. That's what I know. I know what Scripture says. It says He holds me responsible. He holds everyone responsible. 
And if they don't believe, if they don't have saving faith, then they go to the lake of fire. But I also know what the Bible says, that repentance, belief, faith, all these things that are required to be saved are gifts from God. I know that too. I also know that God's only going to give those gifts to a person who He desires to draw to Himself. Not a person who tries to shoehorn in. Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? I never knew you. These are the things that drive uh, naturally minded individuals bananas. Because they don't add up, you see. That's not the way of the world. That's not the way humans function. And that's the whole point. That's literally the whole point. He wants your human side whatever remnant is going on in your own soul, the one that tries to rationalize everything and and approaches the Bible that way, he wants that thing to be totally frustrated. Literally, completely frustrated to the point where you throw in the towel and he says, finally, good. Now can you just accept what I have to say in my word at face value? Repentance, believing, and even saving faith are made very personal to each believer, so much so that salvation is given personally. We are not saved as members of a church. We are saved personally. All right, so that's the little sidebar. I particularly liked this point as well from Tuesday's lesson. Simply stated, repentance is a beautiful thing in God's eyes. Why? Because as we learned on Sunday, it drives you right back to your sense of gratitude. That's a beautiful thing. It made me think of the following passage. Go to Colossians 1.9. Repentance is a beautiful thing in God's eyes. It sure is. Colossians 1.9. This was a a closing point from Sunday's message, a magnificent one. That wasn't even in my notes, to be totally honest with you. Colossians 1.9 For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Of course, right in the middle of that is repentance, is understanding such things, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. On Sunday, this intrinsic connection between repentance and giving thanks sort of emerged from our studies up here on the board in terms of increasing gratitude. I mean, why is repentance beautiful to God? Because that's a true statement. Why is it? Because it does what I'm saying up here on the board. Increasing gratitude. Repentance leads us to gratitude. We give thanks when we realize how depraved we are and continue to be in the flesh. As God reveals more sin to us, we repent more, and we are that much more grateful, and so on. Who here proposes that they knew um, about more sin in their life 10 years ago than they do today? (laughs) The The more you read this, the more you know how offensive your life is to the Lord. And on that alone, you say, oh my goodness, I am one vile individual. (laughs) And you say, thank be to God that he saved this thing. I mean, right? (laughs) Thanks be to God. 
This is why the more mature we become as believers, the more repentant we are. And the more repentant we are, the more we realize how huge God's saving grace actually is. We don't even know the half of it. We don't even know the half of it. If we did, we'd be so distraught, we'd be pummeled to death by our own recognition of our own sinfulness. We'd be so disgusted with ourselves that we'd probably never get out of bed. We'd be completely depressed. Because if you love God, even one iota, and you have a mountain of sin and offenses against that person, your Savior, you're going to be really broken up about it, contrite about it. So God keeps us from that, I believe. Because if we knew everything, we'd be frankly depressed. And this is at the heart of David's statement when he said this magnificent phrase, Psalm 51, verse 4, against you, you only, I have sinned. Why would he say that? Didn't he, like, murder someone? Yep. There wasn't he responsible for, like, tens of thousands of deaths? Yep. And he has the audacity, the man after his own heart, God's own heart, to say against you, you only, I have sinned? Where is that coming from? Where does that stem from? I'll just share here with you. The longer I live, the more David's words make sense to me. It's almost shameful to put it this way, but I don't know how else to put it. The more I respect God, the more I appreciate the fact that He's the one who's had to put up with my sins. He's the one whom I've offended more than any other, even when I sin against others. And He's the one who I wish to please more than any other. So the point on the board, again, is my gratitude increases daily. And the more I grow up in Christ Jesus, the more I'm grateful. Because, frankly, I realize how ridiculously sinful my life is. And it just leads me right back to gratitude. So again, repentance leads us to gratitude. We give thanks when we realize how depraved we are and continue to be in the flesh. As God reveals more sin to us, we repent more and we are that much more grateful and so on. And then, of course, that leads us to that thought of David against you, you only, I have sinned. A person whose heart is wholly remiss of such sentiments is deeming themselves arrogant. In other words, if you have no regard for, no contrition for your sins, um, something's wrong. And as I've taught you so many times in the past, Arrogance is unteachable. You know, maybe that's the person that uh, the Bible was teaching us of earlier. Maybe that's the person, the one that God won't teach. He just says, you're way too arrogant. I'm not going to teach you. I'm not even going to give you the faculties. I'm not even going to let you learn the true meaning, which reminds you of when Jesus flipped his ministry back in the day, started teaching in parables. I'm not even going to let you learn the sweet things about me or my son. Because arrogance is unteachable. Maybe that's who he's talking about. I think that's certainly the case. Lack of repentance is arrogance. This was David's example in Psalm 51 where God granted David's repentant heart and then led him back to himself. And that we saw that nice little almost conversational flow of that chapter. But you know what? An arrogant person doesn't follow God. And in the worst case scenario, arrogance leads to eternity in the lake of fire. But as we know, even believers can be arrogant, leading them to follow their natural instincts, their natural emotions, etc., A humble person has learned that trusting in their Creator is the only way to salvation and deliverance. Therefore, 
as we noted on Tuesday, trust is the key. A humble person trusts in God, while an arrogant person trusts in themselves or some other God. Spouse, I don't know, false prophet, idols, etc., you name it. So we might say, frankly, that deliverance is a function of trust. If you don't trust the one that's able to deliver you, you're not delivered. If you trust in someone other than the one who's able to deliver you, you're not delivered. You get lied to. Ladies, there's no such thing as a white knight on a, how do you say that? A knight on a white, how do you say it? Knight on a white shining armor? See, this is, this, is the, this is what the Lord does for me. He takes that right out of my whole system. You don't even want me talking like that anymore. It's beautiful, right? I don't have to worry about that garbage anymore. I don't want it in my soul. I don't want to know about some dude on a white horse prancing around like a girl. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Ladies, give it up. He's not saving you. Men, you're not, you know, your spouse is not going to save you. Nobody's able to save you except the Lord. So trust in Him, that's the point. And the question came up on Tuesday, what's the difference between those who trust in themselves and those who don't? The ones who trust in themselves are unrepentant. Except in the superficial way, maybe, that the little boy caught with his hand in the cookie jar desires to avoid punishment, called that attrition. The ones who trust in themselves are unrepentant. Now I want to change gears here for a moment, and I know I'm going at a pretty good clip, but hopefully this stuff is sparking new things to think about, new things to talk about in your own realms. I want to change gears for a moment and highlight something else the Spirit revealed to me on Tuesday. On the topic of understanding salvation, I need you to concentrate again. Just because we can theologically and even practically make distinctions between repentance and faith, they are eternally, intrinsically bound together. I have called them out as two sides of the same coin. I mean, someone flips you a coin, you don't get half the coin, right? You get the whole thing. And when we're talking about conversion and salvation, that's how we need to think about these things. And that same pattern or paradigm, if you would, exists even for believers. Repentance and faith come in pairs. So again, just because we can theologically and even practically make distinctions between repentance and faith, they are eternally, intrinsically bound together. So concentrate up here on the board. It's because God saves a whole person that this is absolutely true. God saves a whole person. Do you understand? He saves a whole... If you're going to be... If you're repentant, you're presumably turning from one thing to what? Nothing? Who's drawing you in this direction? Didn't we just read that in Scripture? God is. In other words, there's an, there's an attractiveness to the thing that you're turning to. Turn from this thing, have faith in this. This is a whole person situation. So it's because God saves a whole person that this is absolutely true. A whole person cannot exercise faith that delivers them while remaining unrepentant and vice versa. A whole person cannot exercise repentance that delivers while remaining unfaithful. Why? Up here on the board. Understanding deliverance. Because a man's heart is affected by God's grace, and though he must repent and save faith, only a whole person is able to function in either, and therefore intrinsically both at any given point in time, where the end result is salvation slash deliverance. Let me say it again. I know that's a mouthful. I told you you had to concentrate. Because a man's heart is affected, that should be an A, by the way, not E. 
Because a, man is a man's heart is affected by God's grace, and though he must repent and have faith, only a whole person is able to function in either, and therefore intrinsically both at any given point in time where the end result is salvation and deliverance. In other words, a repentant heart is a faithful one, and a faithful heart is a repentant one. A repentant heart is a faithful one. A faithful one is a repentant one. What I'm trying to draw your attention to, again, I hope you're still concentrating. What I'm trying to draw your attention to is the plane of thinking where God exists. Remember, God sees the heart, which is a broader perspective than just repentance and or faith. You know, we like to play amateur theologian. We like to play um, this or that. We like to sort of carve out doctrines of this and doctrines of that, which is fine. But God sees the heart, which means he's looking at a whole person. So his perspective is much broader than just one of those things. He's looking at a person. So from God's perspective, a righteous, willing heart is one that repents and has faith, resulting in salvation slash deliverance. And in the case of we believers, maybe not perfectly, but certainly both elements required for deliverance are evidenced in order to satisfy God's demands on a person. Do you think it sounds like God at all to say, I'm going to give you repentance but not faith? I'm going to give you something. <laughs> I'm going to play a trick. You ready? You're going to whip around from the self-life and you're going to turn and there's going to be a vacuum there. Or I'm going to be really cruel. I'm going, to, I'm going to make you a tortured individual for the rest of your life. I'm going to give you saving faith. This is ridiculous, by the way. I'm going to give you saving faith, but not repentance. And you're literally going to tear down the middle. <laughs> Does that sound like God? No. God's not interested in playing those kinds of games. He says, I'm going to, I'm going to create a whole new creature, a whole new person. I'm not interested in giving you one without the other. I'm going to give you both. Repentance and saving faith. I realize this is a bit abstract, but I challenge you to think about what I fear, frankly, I'm failing to fully articulate here. This is hard to teach in a way. Maybe if we read another passage from Tuesday's lesson, some of this will shore up in your souls. Let's review Paul's conversion scene. Go to Acts 26.14. Acts 26.14. I think I get kind of frustrated, and I'm sure some of you do as well, when I hear of people having literal fallouts with dear friends or loved ones over distinctions, like um, as if God would grant one thing without the other and then leave you sort of stranded. Because as I've taught in the past, there are some theologies out there, and I know some of you know these people, that says God will save you, but he'll deal with the repentance stuff later. Well, that sounds like a cruel God to me. That's not the God of the Bible. Acts 26, 14. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. And here's again, obviously, repentance. 
to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. There you have almost the entire conversion process in a nutshell. Turn from this to that and receive saving faith in Christ. What Jesus was teaching Paul was his own gospel. There you have it. Just another instance of it, if you would. Obviously, not every aspect of the gospel is in there, but that is certainly the good news. That's the good news that he wanted Paul to go preach. Specifically, even, not just to Jewish people, but specifically to Gentiles, as we know. And as I've been sort of uh, going off on lately, there's only one gospel. There's only one gospel. So just get that out. If there's any doubt in your mind that there's more than one gospel, just throw it in the garbage can. So what Jesus was teaching Paul was his own gospel, the same one he preached to the original twelve. And we can learn a lot about this or from this scene, for example, up here on the board, on the topic of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason that repentance is part of the gospel proper is because God is dealing directly with the object of repentance and faith, the human heart. Again, the reason that repentance is a part of the gospel proper is because God is dealing directly with the object of repentance and faith, the human heart. And as he's been pointing out, uh, human will is not merely a mental issue, but rather, as the Bible describes it, an issue of the whole man. So somehow, some way, God looks at an individual and desires to save them. That's the very best I can tell you. What his criteria was in your life, specifically, or what ha you had to be delivered from, or what your soil, how your soil had to be tilled just right, I don't know. But I know that God saves, and He's the one who draws us to Him. And He makes all of it possible. Human will is not merely a mental issue, but rather, as the Bible describes it, an issue of the whole man. As we noted on Tuesday, the Bible often talks about clothing a man to indicate salvation. Go to Revelation 3.5. Revelation 3.5. The Bible talks about clothing people. Well, does he just clothe you? Does he just clothe one part of your body, in other words? Or does he want to clothe the whole of you? Does he ask you to put on a part of Jesus Christ? Or all of Jesus Christ? Do you get the point? Jesus Christ hated sin. If he were a sinner, which he was not, he would repent. Just like his apostles, the so-called greats. Just like David was, he wasn't an apostle, but just like David, just like Peter, Paul, all those guys, John. They all had repentant hearts. Because they were clothed. Revelation 3, 5, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. In other words, in terms of sanctification, believers are ultimately purified. And this is the same, quote, clothing analogy we find in Ephesians 5.25. Go there. Go to Ephesians 5.25. I'm trying to get you to think about the whole man. Do you understand? The whole man. He doesn't just clothe part of us. He doesn't just say, put on a part of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Do you get the picture? Fully clothed, in other words. Fully purified. We see this same pattern with every form of salvation and deliverance. Even as believers, we see that we are clothed in righteousness, depicting a whole man issue. 
God dresses the whole man, not just bits and pieces of him. Which echoes of Ephesians 6, too, where we put on the full armor of God. Not part of it. What's the command? Put on the full armor of God. Why? Because God deals with the whole man. That's the point. And when we get right down to the bits and bites of what we've been studying, He's not going to clothe you with repentance but not faith. That's only part of the clothing. He's not, it's like giving you a shirt but no pants. He's not going to clothe you with faith but not repentance. Paul wrote about this same concept in his letter to the Romans. Go to Romans 13, 14. Romans 13, 14. Again, I'm just trying to get you to think bigger picture. What is God looking at? What does God deal with when he seeks to save an individual? Romans 13, 14. But put on... Part of the Lord Jesus Christ? No. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. In other words, don't keep one boot from the flesh. (laughs) Put on the Lord. Get dressed, all of you. You know, don't have your favorite little medallion with your little picture of your idol in it. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make, what does that word say, that little two-letter word? Make what? No. Scott's obviously the only one who can read. Next class is going to be rudimentary English. (laughs) Phonetics. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Put on the whole Jesus Christ. Put them on. On Tuesday, we noted one of Jesus' parables. And I loved how the Spirit brought out the will of those invited to receive the salvation of God and that while all are invited, many will say no thank you, if they even say thank you, to their king's invitation, being too busy with the details of the self-life. Incredible, but this is the very picture of arrogance. Go to Matthew 22, verse 1. Matthew 22, verse 1. can't believe we're almost out of time. Some of you are like, I can. (laughs) The way you guys showed up tonight, my goodness. Matthew 22, 1. I should do that to you guys sometime. Just show up like half dead. I wonder what you'd do. Be like, what's the nerve of him? Matthew 22, verse 1, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. That's unbelievable. The king invites you to his table, and you say, Eh, I don't feel like it. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way. One to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. What do you see? Unrepentance. People who are unwilling to turn from their self-life, who are wrapped up in the details of life. Some of you know these people. You've given them the gospel personally. And they're so wrapped up in their self-life, they say, no, not interested. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there... Invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed, there's 
the whole idea of being dressed for the occasion, was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Whew. Do you see any uh, apology there? Do you see an apologetic tone even from our Lord? I don't. I don't. Here's what I do see on the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is looking for the will of man, which intrinsically involves the whole person. Maybe that person who was, you know, got into the wedding looked just enough or acted just enough to get in. Lied his way in. I don't know. Got a backstage pass. Knew someone. I don't know. God is looking for the will of man, which intrinsically involves the whole person. A person must be given to in order to be quickened to. Just another way to think about uh, what God is looking for in an individual. You must be given to. You must be open to being saved in the first place in order to be quickened to salvation. As we noted on Tuesday and earlier, the Bible often speaks about one's clothing in the spiritual sense. This came up on Tuesday as well. The robe of righteousness, a person who refuses to be dressed by the king, will be thrown out of the wedding ceremony. A la Matthew 22:13. Case in point. I want saving faith. I believe I have it, but I don't want repentance. I'll deal with it later. What say you of that person? I say they're not dressed for the occasion. I say, how dare you propose to stand at the throne and say, yeah, I never repented, but I said here this prayer right here, so I believe I have this saving faith thing. I got my little ticket right here, you see? My little coin with John 3.16 on it. That person's not dressed for the occasion. That person never accepted the invitation. That person was still busy their entire life, as we just saw, with all the details of life. They wanted this and they wanted that. And Jesus said, uh-uh. Unless you deny that, you can't get this. Makes sense to me. You see, God's dealing with the whole person. The whole person has to deal with both. On the flip side, of course, are those, again, who do, who do accept the king's garments. Go to Isaiah 61.10. Isaiah 61.10. Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. As, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. Sound familiar? It should appear on the board. Matthew 13, 23. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed, bear, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. This same soil analogy, better yet, the whole agricultural analogy is one that Jesus depended or used heavily, as did the prophet Isaiah. What it echoes is what Paul wrote years later in 1 Corinthians 3, 7 up here on the board. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. I mean, are you anything special because you sow a little seed? No. 
who is able to change a person, who is able to grant repentance, who is able to allow an a, a, a enslaved individual to even believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then who grants saving faith? He does. So who's really tilling the soil? He is. Who's really preparing the soil? He is. And doesn't he have that right to say, I'm not going to give you, I don't want someone partially dressed at the wedding feast. I don't want that. I want someone who's repentant and has faith. I want both of these things. And I get to decide. Because I'm the one who gives them. In other words, we have three prophets, Jesus, Isaiah, and Paul, essentially saying the exact same thing about God's grace. That is, that it is by grace alone that God saves and delivers us. It is by grace alone that our soils are prepared. And it is by grace alone that God waits patiently for what we call conversion. That is the manwood viewpoint of salvation itself. Now, I loved how the Spirit took us back and whatever time we've got left here. Go back to the beginning of this wonderful chapter, Isaiah 61, verse 1. Isaiah 61, verse 1. He says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord in the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. The beauty of Isaiah's words here is that repentance is put on full display for us, not just saving faith. And in the full context of what the Spirit's been saying here this evening, what Isaiah is clearly writing about is that God sees the heart of man, which is really a statement about a whole man, not just certain aspects of his being. And I guess um, in, in a much smaller way, it's the same way we ought to ponder the essence of God, or say the fruit of the Spirit, etc. That is to say that we don't ever think of God only as sovereign, or only as love, or only as integrity. He is all of these things at once because He is who He is. That's the point. And you're all of these things. When He saved you, He gave you repentance and saving faith. And even the, belief, the ability to believe He gave you. This is part of who you are now in Christ Jesus. And that's the point. God deals with the whole person. God is all of these things at once because He is who He is. So it is the same with man. We aren't just one thing or another. We are all of who we are as we are made in the image of Him who created us. So we cannot artificially slice and dice up our own essences in order to accommodate the sensibilities of man. Well, I like the idea of being saved. I like the idea of having saving faith. But I don't really like the idea of repentance. Well, God deals with the whole man. So what say you on this topic? Shall we breach Holy Scripture and say, well, let's put this one on ice for a little while and let's lie to people and let's go against what Isaiah just talked about? Let's go out and preach a dis different gospel from a different spirit about another Jesus, one that didn't say repent, one that didn't say deny himself, one that didn't say pick up your own cross, one that didn't say all these things. Let's go preach that and accommodate because, you know, God knows we'll be offensive to the sensibilities of man. So we cannot artificially slice and dice up our own essences in order to accommodate the sensibilities of man. I believe this is much of what the Spirit's been saying as of late, and here's my last point, and we'll close. Again, I told you, if this lesson had a 
unique title that would have been the whole man. Treat man as a whole, not as bits and pieces, for God sees the heart of man, the whole of him, when he makes his judgments about him. Again, treat man as a whole, not as bits and pieces, for God sees the heart of man, the whole of him, when he makes his judgments about him. I don't know about you, but I think that's enough for one lesson. Amen? All right, let's, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity to gather together the fellowship this way, to enjoy the very bread of life. Thank you for letting us dine here this evening by means of your grace. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that need them so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.